everyone, and welcome to the Apple Show. We're talking Apple, Apple, Apple today in pretty much every segment, including our official iPhone SE podcast review. So yeah, it's pretty much all Apple all the time today. So let's get started. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and we've got a very Apple-y show today, so if you're an Android fan, well, sorry. We're introducing a semi-regular segment to the show called Podcast Picks. It's a new segment with a <clears throat> less-than-original name. Our first entry is an iPad keyboard from our friends at Bridge. For our patrons, we're taking a look at Apple's auto interface CarPlay and how it stacks up against Android Auto. And finally, the main reason we're talking so much Apple today, we've got our official iPhone SE podcast review. So if that sounds like a lot, it is. So all the more reason to jump into the news of the week. Nerds rejoice! The San Diego Comic-Con, which had been canceled for the first time in its 50-year history, is back! Sort of. Organizers took to Twitter to announce Comic-Con at Home, featuring free parking, comfy chairs, pets welcome, and personalized snacks because you'll be watching it online from the comfort of your own home. This is quickly becoming a trend in the tech and nerd space. There was some hope that Comic-Con might still be viable with a summer date, hoping that COVID-19 would just back the hell off for a few months and let us fly our geek flags. Even if it had, most of the stuff that Comic-Con was going to pimp are all suffering delays, so there wouldn't have been much to do anyway. This is very much taking lemons and making rum and coke, which I'm always in favor of. Will this be the perfect event? Probably not. I've never been, but from what I hear, nothing short of free steak dinners and guaranteed sex can compare to the San Diego Comic Con, but it's probably a good start, and it'll give us all something to talk about, at least for a little while. Rumor has it that the iPhone 12 will have a 120Hz display, and yeah, rumors suggest a lot of things, especially when you're four months in advance of anything approaching a release date. Folks, there's a reason why I don't report on Apple rumors and really any other kind of rumor. It's mostly because they're all over the map and generally turned out to be a wish list of sorts rather than actual rumors. So this will probably be one of the last times you hear me talk about iPhone rumors or rumors from any upcoming devices unless they're really, really weird or really, really juicy. This is neither weird nor juicy. It could be true or not true, and it won't really matter either way. We'll probably hear every kind of rumor from huge battery to tiny battery to a headset adapter for AR to 14 karat gold editions of the damn thing. What will actually happen will happen on stage, probably, and Tim Cook will be talking about it. Then, and only then, will I cover it. This week, Microsoft is rolling out anti-reply all protections to prevent the fit from hitting the email shan when Karen gets a little careless with her distribution list. And then another Karen replies. And then another Karen replies. And then Mike, you know, in order to keep us gender neutral, goes ahead and tries to mansplain to Karen how not to reply all storm, and it's just a frickin' mess. Well, Microsoft is trying to prevent that mess from happening by putting a block on replies to distribution lists over 5,000 people within 60 minutes. And the blocker actually says, dude, 
Trust me, you don't want to send this, just chill out. And then everything is happy. Or at least in theory, that's how it's supposed to work. Time will tell if it actually works. Personally, I've been in Reply All Hell before, and honestly, it's just a few extra clicks of the delete button for me. But something like this can royally mess with email servers, so it's probably a good thing. I guess. Even though it is fun to mess with Karen. Just like Joshua Topolsky wrote about VR's future last week, so too did Benedict Evans this week. Evans' take is a little bit more sobering. While VR has taken enormous leaps forward from Google Cardboard to the Oculus Quest, there doesn't seem to be a clear path forward to quote-unquote success. He cites original PCs and original iPhones. In and of themselves, they were missing pieces when they were first introduced that were quickly added on in subsequent models. And indeed, the path for VR might be similar. Or it might be that we have no idea what VR still needs to be successful. What I find interesting about both Topolsky last week and Evans this week is that both point to the Oculus Quest as the best there is right now. And I can't help but agree. It's not just because I own one. The Oculus Quest brings a great VR experience in a portable package that is very, very accessible. And that's a good step. Now we just need to figure out what the next steps are, or even whether or not the Quest is the right first step. It's a legal loophole, and we here on the podcast generally applaud exploding such loopholes. But Huawei is still allowed to work with Google and Google Services if the device that they release was certified for Google Services before the U.S. dropped the ban hammer. As it turns out, the Huawei P30 Pro was one of the last Huawei devices to be certified, so therefore it's grandfathered in. So, Huawei just re-released the Huawei P30 Pro 2020 edition, which is basically the Huawei P30 Pro 2019 edition, and a new sticker. Is this cool? Sure, the Huawei P30 Pro was by all reports a very excellent phone, and it honestly probably holds up today, which is great. It doesn't hold up to something like the Silicon and the Samsung Galaxy S20 or an LG V60, but it can stand toe-to-toe with virtually any 2019 flagship, and it brings amazing optics to the table as well. This is a good phone with Google services. That being said, it's probably not the best way to spend your money in 2020, unless you want an amazing camera and Google services. And does it sound like I'm flip-flopping here? It probably does, because the camera is scary good. But I really don't think you should buy one. Unless, of course, you want to. Damn it! Never mind. Meanwhile, speaking of Huawei, President Trump extended the ban on Huawei for another year because trade wars are easy, which means Huawei is in the Huawei mobile services boat for the foreseeable future. Interesting side note, I recently spoke with Daniel Bader from Android Central, who lives in Canada, eh? Which is a country not forbidden from working with Huawei. As such, he has a Huawei P40 sans Google services, and we chatted about that for an upcoming episode. Sounds like I have a year to make sure that that gets to air, eh? Anyway, while I agree that allowing Huawei to establish a foothold in our communication infrastructure is a terribly bad idea, I'm not sure I really agree with the permaban across the board. There's every reason to keep Huawei's deep Chinese state connections out of our ability to communicate, for sure. But why can't I buy a Huawei phone in the U.S.? That's just weird and really has nothing to do with national security. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't really lose sleep over it. But still... It seems kind of weird. 
Jeffrey Katzenberg, co-founder of Quibi, was asked about Quibi's slow start. His answer? The pandemic. Um, well, what? It turns out that Quibi's niche is filling in those little spaces in between tasks with video. It's not really meant to be a sit-down-and-watch or binge or anything like that that one might do during a pandemic. Something we'll talk about in our next story, spoiler alert, is that there are over 100 streaming services in America right now. So it's not that Quibi signed into an over, 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 overcrowded space. No, 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 no. It must be the coronavirus. Seriously, I mean, I guess I kind of get it. Quibi isn't really meant to be binged. And if that's the case, then I blame Quibi because they're just not paying attention to how people are watching things. So don't blame the pandemic. Blame your poor research and common sense skills. And it's funny because I still haven't watched a single Quibi despite my free membership from T-Mobile because I tried to on launch day and couldn't get through, and I just never went back. Why would I? I still had to finish Psych, and then I had to catch up on Bosch, and then there's that new show, Upload, and one called Hunters that I want to catch up on. And did I mention that this is a very, 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 way, 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 over, over, overcrowded space? Yeah. Did you know that there were over 100 streaming services available in the U.S.? Well, yes, dipshit, you just told us that in the last story. Right, but did you know that before that? Well, yeah, I guess it kind of made sense. Well, shut up. What was I saying? Oh, right. Did you know that there were... There are over 100 streaming services available in the U.S., and if you subscribe to all of them, they would cost you over $900 per month. So says Ashley Esqueda at CNET, who went through the painstaking trouble to rank all of them into tiers based on a completely not objective point system. But we're giving her a lot of latitude here because she ranked 100 freaking streaming services. That's just a bag of angry cats crazy. So who were the big winners? Try and hide your surprise here. Amazon Prime, Hulu, and Netflix. Wow! Scores were based on the criteria of availability, price, variety, back catalog, and original programming. Those are all very solid criteria, and of course, those three did very well in all fields. I'm not really sure how diverse Hulu's original catalog is, but... Maybe I'll have to go exploring now, I guess. Huzzah! And if you have any recommendations for me, leave me a voicemail or send me an email at benefitofadow.com slash contact, and I thank you. The Lenovo Duet Chromebook is out now for a price point of around $279, and if the guys at Chrome Unbox are to be believed, that's a pretty good deal for a pretty good machine. They've spent a lot of time with the Lenovo 10e Chromebook tablet, and the Duet is basically the 10e in a thinner, more consumer-friendly package. It also comes with a keyboard and a stand, and that's what I'm talking about, fam! Woohoo! The Lenovo Duet is not currently available on Amazon or elsewhere, despite reaching its launch date, so we'll have to update the link in the show notes as we find them. Basically, this isn't going to be a primary workstation for most people. At less than $300, it would be disingenuous at best to think that it might be. For me, I could see it being a nice little writing box, but considering the fact that I have a gaggle of those already, and oh yeah, I don't go anywhere because of COVID-19, I'm thinking I probably don't need to pick one up right now. Anyway, if Lenovo happens to offer a review unit, now that's a different discussion, and hey Lenovo, call me. DMs are open, just saying. 
Hold on there, Thunder fans. It turns out that security researchers uncovered no fewer than seven, 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 seven security vulnerabilities in Thunderbolt that allow attackers to get their hands on basically anything they want inside the machine. With a pretty big caveat. And that caveat is... The attackers need physical access to your machine. Well, okay, some hackers can tell you your blood type, favorite color, and whether you're Team Edward or Team Jacob once they have physical access to your machines. This is just another way that they can do that. But it's still kind of bad, and it goes all the way back to 2011, so pretty much if you have a MacBook, you're vulnerable. And yes, this is whether you have Thunderbolt ports or Thunderbolt-compatible USB-C ports. It's all screwed up. Oh, and by the way, did I mention that these are hardware vulnerabilities, so software cannot fix them. That's a whole bottle of yikes sauce. Well, good luck, everyone. Mark Lavoie, one of the engineers in charge of the Google Pixel's camera, left Google just a couple of months after the Pixel general manager Mario Quirier's Quirier's after Pixel general manager Mario Q also left the company. Rick Osterloh, chief of Google Hardware, who also knows how to pronounce Mario Q's last name, was not a fan of the Google Pixel at launch last fall, saying he wasn't happy about some of the choices that the Pixel team made, and I have to wonder how many times he said solely during that particular meeting. He also didn't like the battery life, but then neither did literally anyone else, so this is a podcast shrug. What all this means going forward will be tricky. The Google Pixel camera is one of the best, or, you know, one of the only reasons to buy a Pixel. So if Mark Lavoie is leaving, that might be no bueno. Of course, if he was the driving force behind leaving out an ultra-wide camera, then most reviewers might bid him good riddance. All the same, losing a general manager and one of your head imaging guys is definitely no bueno, and it makes me worry for the future of the Pixel. Just a little bit. Speaking of Google, Google Play Music is continuing its tradition of abandoning popular products for one that is less popular, YouTube Music. Google announced this week that Google Play Music will be retired by the end of the year in favor of YouTube Music. Both services have existed for years. Recently, Google updated YouTube Music to bring it more in line with Google Play Music offerings, like the ability to upload your own tracks and the like. Personally... I've never really minded either service, but I'm not the deepest music user ever. In fact, I really only have it because of the YouTube premium membership that comes with it. So, whatever for me. Others, though, have complained, but others tend to do that. That's why we call them others. Meanwhile, I hope you weren't married to Google Play Music. Twitter announced this week that any employee who wants to work from home can do so indefinitely, like Forever. If the pandemic has taught us anything over these past few months, it's that working from home is very, very possible for a lot of office jobs. Twitter just happens to be the first major tech company to allow employees to work from home forever. Remote work is a really powerful tool, and for some people, it's really great. For me, I'll be honest, it's really not. There's a reason why this podcast keeps me working just about every weekend. I suck at working from home. If I could afford an office, I would probably get one, and then I'd go there and dick around for hours while I'm supposed to be writing reviews. I worked for a call center years ago, and they absolutely destroyed my work ethic. C'est la vie. I do get the job done, so just back off. What was I saying? All right. Twitter will let everyone work from home, which is really cool, and yes, this newsread 
was basically a two-minute embodiment of an 80-hour work week for me. Get the picture? Yeah. Gizmodo found a neat story about some students in the University of Tokyo who are developing an inflatable electric-powered bike, which is pretty awesome on many levels. First, there's the portability factor in that this bike only weighs about 12 pounds. There's also a safety factor. An air mattress is a lot softer than a steel frame for a bike, so it could reduce injuries for struck pedestrians. Plus, I don't know when the last time you rode a bike or a scooter, but those seats are not the most comfortable, so this may address that problem too. Some outstanding issues though, the wheels, motor, and battery need to be installed separately, so it's not like you're just tossing this thing into a backpack. Plus, it also requires an external pump, electric or otherwise, so it's not terribly convenient to inflate. All the same, I'm excited by this product because it could be a neat step forward in personal mobility. Plus, it's being developed by students, so once you throw in professional designers and engineers into the mix, this could be the basis for a real-life product in the future, and frankly, one that I want. Overall, it's a neat little piece of outside-the-box thinking, and it could develop into something really useful and cool, which is why it ends up on this show. To people who don't pray, or people like me who do pray but also believe in science, the Big Bang Theory is the overriding theory on the origin of the universe. But like many scientific theories, there are holes. Dark matter, dark energy are two big examples. But some backseat scientists have latched onto these holes as proof that the Big Bang Theory is a big bag of BS. So two astronomers, Drs. Barnes and Lewis, wrote a book called The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook, or how to beat the Big Bang. In it, Drs. Barnes and Lewis outlined the Big Bang Theory and its holes, like, these are the problems we can't explain yet. But then they outline a series of steps that a new theory would have to go through in order to become more accepted than the Big Bang Theory. You have to prove this, and this, and this, and this, and don't forget this, and this. Basically, a new theory would have to explain everything that we know about the universe, and it better be right, because the Big Bang Theory already explains a lot of that stuff. And according to the book, there had better be some math in there, and it'll have to be a lot longer than can be summed up in a tweet or a Facebook status. So if you think you got the chops, pick up the book and get to work. And if you succeed, I'll even report on it. A few weeks ago, we reported that Apple might be buying a VR company called NextVR. They just did. And yeah, that's basically the whole story. And finally, Amazon unveiled a trio of new Kindle Fire devices, the Fire HD 8, the Fire HD 8 Plus, and the Fire HD 8 Kids Edition. The main story here is that the tablets start at $90 and go up from there. But the Fire HD 8 Plus also has wireless charging, and all three tablets charge with USB Type-C! I've ordered the Fire HD 8 Plus and the wireless charging dock so that I can review them for the show, so I'll let you know what's up with Amazon's latest tablets. Personally, I'm excited. I haven't used a Fire tablet in quite some time now, so I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you are too. This is our first edition of Podcast Picks, and by the way, you might be thinking that that name sounds familiar, to which I would reply, does it? Hmm... Anyway, Podcast Picks is going to be a sort of mini-review of products that I use on a regular basis. They'll be handy and awesome, and I'll include links to where you can buy them. And if you buy them from that link, it won't cost you anything extra, 
but you'll be helping out the show. It's like a win, 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 win. There might be a few extra wins in there. But anyway, let's get on to our first podcast pick. So for a long time, the Dell XPS keyboard has been the creme de la creme in terms of keyboards, at least in my humble opinion. And that had a good long run, but now I'm absolutely in love with my Bridge 10.2 keyboard that goes with my 7th generation iPad, not Pro. This keyboard is simply wonderful. The pitch between the keys, the travel, the responsiveness slash clickiness of the keys are all really, really really good. I'll be honest, I was nervous about using such a small keyboard. It's only the size of an iPad after all. But I honestly don't care at all because this keyboard is so very good. In fact, most of my scripts for this podcast over the last three weeks have been written with this keyboard on my iPad. I have two 13-inch laptops to write on if I wanted to. I just did a review of a full-size Logitech keyboard that I could have used, but week after week, I have crouched over this tiny 10.2-inch air quotes laptop to write seven to 10-page long scripts. This keyboard, folks, is that good. I got the space gray version to go with my space gray iPad. The keyboard sits in the middle of the frame with equal empty space, top and bottom. I did not get the version of the bridge keyboard with a trackpad, and now I honestly kind of regret that. Maybe for a future review? Hey, bridge, call me. The keyboard is about as thick as the iPad itself, so therefore this keyboard basically doubles the thickness and also the weight of the iPad. You're basically super gluing a second iPad onto the first one. The battery lasts a long time. In the three weeks that I've had this device, I've only had to charge it once, and by the way, that was fresh out of the box, so who knows what level the battery was at when I first connected this. As I write this, I last charged the keyboard a week ago, and it's still above 75%. The keys are laid out in a standard QWERTY layout with number row, Apple, with typical control, option, and command keys, etc. There's also a Siri button in the bottom left-hand corner, but come on, it's Siri. Across the top of the keyboard are brightness controls, media controls, things like that. This keyboard is also backlit, by the way, and did I mention I love this keyboard? But it's not perfect, and one of the major downsides isn't really even Bridges' fault. Notably, iOS autocorrect is a goddamn dumpster fire. It's almost as if Apple is actively trying to keep those autocorrect memes alive with how bad autocorrect is. It is simply terrible, but then again, that's not really Bridges' fault. This keyboard attaches to the iPad with two rubber-coated clamps on either end of the keyboard, allowing the iPad to close like a clamshell. The hinge is great, and it works at all angles between zero and just short of 180 degrees. But I would absolutely love it if somehow Bridge could make this go all the way around to at least a tent stand so I could watch movies. As it is, I have to have the keyboard open like a laptop to watch movies. It's not the worst thing in the world. But it is a minor little annoyance. The only other thing that I don't like about this keyboard is it basically leaves you no way to actually use the tablet in portrait mode except to pull the tablet off the keyboard, which kind of defeats the purpose and leaves the iPad unprotected. This wouldn't be a big deal, except that the smart keyboard which I got with the iPad originally does allow you to use the iPad in portrait. Bluetooth connectivity can take a little bit to kick in as well. When I first open the keyboard and start a movie, the volume buttons don't always work right away. It's still a minor thing, but it's still there. Now, none of these are big deals, and even if they were, 
ignore them because the keyboard is that good. It's wonderful for carrying around with you and settling down on a couch or at a coffee shop, you know, a coffee shop when they open again, to bang out a script or an email or a 350-page novel. It will just flow. And once again, a link to pick up this keyboard will be in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. If you end up getting one, I sincerely hope you love it as much as me. And I also hope you click my link, because again, you'll be helping out the show. Overall, you will not regret your purchase, so be sure to check it out. When Apple announced the iPhone SE, I was intrigued. A mini phone with a long-abandoned Touch ID sensor, the potential for a great camera, and a modern processor? Well, except for the mini phone part, all the rest sounded great. Plus, it's topical, and a play has got to play, so I ordered it, and I've been using it as my daily driver for around two weeks. So now I'm ready to give my full review of the iPhone SE 2020 edition. Right off the bat, I should mention that I ordered the product red version of the phone, and it is just gorgeous. Especially the aluminum rails encircling the perimeter of the phone, they look really, really good. The front of the phone is your typical iPhone 8, ginormous forehead, ginormous chin, and a home button right where it should be, always. Face ID, look, I get it, Face ID is nice, but call me an old man, but I prefer just having a home button there to use my fingerprint. In these days, masks are everywhere, and by the way, a lot of people will continue to wear masks every day, even after COVID-19, because if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that humans are gross creatures. What was I saying? Oh right, Touch ID works through disposable gloves, which is a win. The volume buttons, mute switch, and power switch are all very nice feeling with good tactile feedback. There is no headphone jack, just dual speaker grills on the bottom of the phone, though only one of them has an actual speaker behind it. But the iPhone SE manages stereo sound output using the earpiece and one bottom firing speaker. Also on the bottom, you'll find your lightning connector. The display is a 4.7 inch LCD panel and holy crap, they still make LCD panels? How about that? Anyway, the chipset is an Apple A13 Bionic right out of the iPhone 11. My phone has the base 64 gigabytes of storage and 3 gigabytes of RAM. The camera is a single 12 megapixel shooter in the back with a 7 megapixel selfie cam in front. We'll talk more about the camera in just a nitty bitty bit. The battery is tiny, tiny, 1,821 milliamp hours, and you probably think I misplaced a decimal there. I didn't. The battery supports fast charging, though only if you buy Apple's swanky 30-watt charger. I did not, so it takes around two and a half hours to charge the phone with the included charger in the box, but only three hours to charge wirelessly. Go figure. That being said, even with such a baby battery, I had little problem getting through entire days on a single charge. But I was always running on fumes by bedtime, so put into perspective that I'm in quarantine and lockdown and I'm home all day rather than on a network, I could see this phone running down by, say, dinner time, maybe a little after if you're out and about. The screen is also tiny by today's standards. It boggles my mind that 4.7 inches were once considered large phones. When placed next to my LG V60, for example, this phone looks like a tiny little baby phone. And when you play Call of Duty on the phone, it plays like a tiny little baby phone. 
it's basically unplayable, which is a shame because of the LG V60, the Samsung Galaxy S10 5G, the TCL 10 Pro, and the iPhone SE. The iPhone is literally the only one of those powerhouses that never batted an eyelash at Call of Duty. Go figure. This phone is a teensy-weensy powerhouse, and I love that about the iPhone SE. But now let's get to the part of the phone that I don't love. Actually, I might even use the word hate. The software. And by the software, yes, I mean iOS. Now, granted, I'm coming from an Android-only past of around four years or so. Yes, I totally understand that, trust me. And I'm sure just about every part of iOS that I'm about to complain about could fall into the you-get-used-to-it category with enough time and enough exposure. And I'm going to start with the war drum that I have been beating with iOS for years, the keyboard. My biggest complaint about the iOS keyboard is the fact that there is no number row. In a time when people have to enter passwords for every single app they ever use, entering a password is borderline cruel on iOS. Now, before you get up in arms, yes, you can install a third-party keyboard like Gboard. Fine. But it's 2020, Apple, and it's way, 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 way past time for you to update your keyboard. Add to that, there's no punctuation on the keyboard, except at certain times, like entering an email address. Some apps have the ability to alter the keyboard slightly. For example, Twitter adds a hashtag and an at symbol on the keyboard. But that's actually a worse experience. Keyboards, and virtual keyboards especially, rely on muscle memory to type, and that memory will get screwed up every time you enter a new app. Gboard gives you a period, and from that icon, you can get other punctuation. On iOS, you need to hit the number key to switch to numbers, and only then do you get other punctuation. Do you want to know why kids don't use punctuation in text and emails today? There's your problem. But even beyond the keyboard, iOS's flat refusal to allow you to put your icons where you want them is maddening enough, but also limiting icon placement to just four columns is almost criminal. Sure, on the iPhone SE's tiny screen, there's barely enough room for a fifth column, but I can see smaller icons at least give me the choice. Notifications? They're really just okay on iOS, except for the fact that there's no notification on the phone to tell you you have a notification. They just kind of sit there in the upper shade, waiting for you to swipe down without actually telling you that you need to swipe down. Once you do, you can tap on them or swipe them to open the app. You can only clear them out with a clumsy swipe left and tap a button sequence. Notifications are just not good, and for me, they're almost the center of a smartphone experience. Apple has a lot of work to do here. Now, to be fair, on the software side, Apple also does a lot of things really, really well, like swiping up from the bottom for the control center, and the integration between all devices in the Apple ecosystem. Copying text from a Mac and pasting it on the phone is pretty damn cool. I don't care who you are. Plus, consider the fact that if history is any indication, this phone will get five years of operating system updates, and that's just insane. The best Android phones owned by Google will maybe get three years if you're lucky. If you want a long-time phone companion with all the best software that Apple can provide, and a lot of it is really good, then yes, the iPhone SE is a win. 
So, if you're firmly embedded into the Apple ecosystem, this phone does make sense, because if you are, you don't care about the keyboard, or the notifications, or any of the other numerous bugaboos that I have with the software that have been editorialized to death at this point. So, thumbs up, good on ya. But let's move on. The performance on this phone is top-notch. As mentioned, this phone can pump out games like Call of Duty Mobile or even Fortnite without so much as a stutter. Basic operations on the phone are lag-free. This is all powered by that A13 silicon inside, and Apple has a long history of optimizing the crap out of its silicon because it actually makes it and knows exactly what it can do. And this phone is 100% a smooth operator in that regard. The cameras on this phone... They fall into the just good department when it comes to stills. They're not great by any stretch of the imagination. As mentioned, there is a single 12 megapixel camera on the back and 7 megapixel camera on the front. Both are capable of grabbing great images in bright daylight, but so can any other phone. In particular, the rear camera gets really good natural bokeh when doing macro shots, which was a fun surprise. Both cameras perform very well in sunlight, but as with most smartphone cameras, once the sun goes down, so too does the quality drastically. In particular, highlights get completely blown out, and there is a ton of grain in the shadows. In daylight, this isn't an issue. Nothing gets blown out or lost in the grain. Nighttime, though, it's kind of yuck. But as I mentioned, that's to be expected on most smartphone cameras. You're going to get that. Portrait mode on both cameras performs well. Apple throws in those special lighting effects on its portrait mode, which I really don't use, including stage lighting, etc. They're neat in a party trick kind of way. Portrait mode still has trouble with hair, and in particular ponytails, figuring that ponytails are part of the background, not part of the subject. Still, that's pretty consistent between me and my daughter, so it's not just a me thing. And yeah, I'm a 43-year-old with a ponytail, so what? What you gonna make of it? Yeah, I thought so. Video on this phone is very, very good though. I shot a few samples in motion on my bike in both 1080p and 4K, and they're very, very smooth. I can't quite do a handheld pan shot for like a product video, unfortunately, but if you're looking to video a moving subject, especially outside, this is a great camera to do that with. The camera picks up a lot of detail, but for stills, it's unfortunate that the camera underperforms. And I should also point out that I really only noticed all this stuff once I moved the photos to my computer and blew them up to 100% on my 24-inch monitor. On social media, these shots are mostly very good, except for the highlights, of course. Those are going to be blown out even in smaller images. But anyway, if you're posting photos to Facebook, this camera's going to be great. But if you're planning on printing them out, not so much. But nobody should ever print anything anyway. Some other test notes for this little guy, the screen is really good, it's an LCD panel, which to be honest I was only barely aware that they even made those anymore. But anyway, you won't get the deepest blacks, but overall the screen is really good with great color reproduction. The phone has a lightning jack, EU be damned, which is kind of annoying, but also not entirely unexpected. So let's wrap all this up, who is this phone for? Well. It's for iPhone people who long for the hardy days of Touch ID. It's for people who want to get into the iOS ecosystem but don't want to pay $1,000 for the privilege. And at this point, I should point out that Apple flagships start at $700, not $1,000. 
But still, it's for people who want to try it out and not pay through the nose. It's for people who don't really want to play games. They just want a small, reliable phone that fits easily in their pocket, and it will fit very easily in your pocket, and it'll last for years. This phone is all of that, and at $400, that's a lot of bang for your buck. I can tell you it's not for me. By the time my review period was over, I was aching to get back to the safety of Android. It just boggles my mind that for as much as Apple knows about software, like getting computers and phones to work together so seamlessly, they really leave a lot to be desired when it comes to actual customer experience. It's like no one at Apple has ever heard of Android and can't admit that maybe, just maybe, some of the things that Google does are demonstrably better. Never occurs to them. Personally, I'm happy for the experience, and I frankly think that Apple should emulate me by picking up a competitor's phone and trying it out. Sometimes you have to read the other team's playbook, and that's okay. iOS is a good operating system for those who know it and love its quirks. So is Android, and trust me, Android has quirks, folks. So for me, these last two weeks have been a very valuable relearning of Apple's phone OS and refreshing my memory on its ups and downs. So should you get one? If I had to guess, knowing my audience, I'd probably say no. But if you happened upon this podcast and are just listening for the first time because you wanted to hear about the iPhone SE, welcome. Please subscribe. And yes, if you fall into any of the categories I laid out, then the iPhone SE 2020 is a great little phone. It's just not my great little phone. So that's going to do it for today's episode of the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. If you are digging this show, tell your friends. We've got some great shows coming up, including more interviews, more reviews, more of all the things. We've even got more Cliff coming up. And speaking of Cliff, thank you very much to co-producer Clifton M. Thomas for all of his help on the show. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a review and join us on Patreon for more bonus goodies. And as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs>